We are in 2 Timothy chapter 2. If you're using a pew Bible this morning, that's page 995. If you'd like to turn there. Second Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus for eternal glory. This is the word of the Lord. This morning, I meant to mention as we came to our prayer time this morning regarding our parking lot. Um, just just the admonition again to be careful. It is slippery. In particular, you get a, a skiff of snow on it like this, and it is slippery underneath. And we realize that. You'll see in the bulletin an announcement that we've made a couple of times. I'm not going to remake that announcement, but there has been a decision to, to try to resurface a portion of that for two reasons. One is to, to get it down to the resurface part. You can't do that with a gravel surface. Get it bare enough so that we can then get the ice off and so there'll be a portion that is much more safe to park in and to walk into the building upon. So that has been done. I also wanted to tie into that to tell you this, that you may begin to hear some things and we want to make sure that we're communicating correctly about this. Um, In fact, this Tuesday night, there's a meeting of the trustees and, and the leadership board that wants to be a part of that meeting, and so be aware of that and, and remember that. And the purpose of that meeting is this, that um, we, we have decided that we have, over the years, since um, you know, the first building project I was a part of is when we connected two buildings together, Fellowship Hall and the sanctuary, the old sanctuary. And from that time, I've had a number of building projects and been able to spread out. And obviously, this is the biggest of those projects here that we're now in. And a a few months ago, several months ago, over a year ago probably now, we paid off this project, the the project of this sanctuary and the youth center. And and then began to feel some growing pains in our educational areas and, and began to ask the question, how can we better use space? How can we get this so it works for our preschool ministry particularly, which is pushing us now to get those kids in one area so they're not spread out over the building. Always the danger when you're moving children, and we have to move them as you have to have lots of adults with them so one doesn't somehow escape from us uh, and get away from us. So we, And we do that. We say that to your comfort. We do. But we'd like to be able to have them more in one area. And some of those kinds of things, there are four or five things that began to prop up. And we just decided we, we don't want to just do this willy-nilly and just keep spreading out without some kind of an overall plan in place. And so we decided the next step was for us to go out and to contact some, some architects who then could come in and give us a proposal of what they could do for us to show us how to better use the building, uh, better use what we have, how we can be more efficient in what we have and those kinds of things. And so that that particular process has lasted about a year now and it's coming to a 
a point of decision. Uh, we, we had three come in. We've narrowed it down to one. We've asked that person to come back for a second visit and tell us exactly for a sum of money what they will give us conceptually of what might be done and what possibilities are there. We have, we have subsequently tied this, this parking lot project onto that project a little bit and actually right now have accumulated a, about 110,000, 110,000 in our building fund and, and that has just come to us. We haven't really made many announcements at all. It's just come. And, and so we have some funds there to help pay a portion to somebody to give us a big picture view of things and that kind of thing. Plus, do some of this parking lot. We could use some more for the parking lot part of that. If you want to give to that fund, you can do that. But that's why that's there. That's why you're starting to see building fund money come in and building fund funds being accumulated and that kind of thing. That's, that's where we're at. So if you have questions, you can talk to one of the trustees or particularly the church leadership uh, can can just kind of keep you up and abreast of all of that. But Tuesday is that meeting, and so uh, pray for that meeting. Now, the text. I want you to turn, if you will, again to Second Timothy. And let me let, let us bring us up to speed here. We, we have been through Advent, and last Sunday I took a Sunday to kind of just get us all back in the saddle and did not go back into our series, which we began before Christmas. And that series is Guarding the Deposit Entrusted to Us which is us looking at, at really how we should do church. I mean, how, how, the, how the church should operate, what it should look like. What is, what is some of the purposes of the church? And particularly, one of the things that, that overarches all of that is that we've come to, and we spent several weeks talking about that, that, that part of guarding the deposit is, is guarding the truth. Um, it, it says in the text, in two different places, in the epistles, and by the way, we're doing this in First and Second Timothy and Titus, if you're just coming in on this series. We're looking at all three of those books and, and really looking at four ways to guard the deposit. And the deposit, we mean by the deposit, we mean the gospel. The gospel of God's grace, the, the admonition that, that Dan prayed to us, the scripture he prayed where he said, all the promises are yes in Christ. They all culminate in that gospel. That's where we most clearly see the purposes of this book and, and all that it was written about was, was Jesus Christ and his coming and his accomplishment and all of those things. But we're to guard that. I mean, we don't make that up. We don't, we don't invent that. We don't add to that. That's not what the admonition is. It says guard it. Guard that deposit. Protect it. And, and that is a primary um, mantra that, that we must hear and have, we must guard that deposit. And we guard it by guarding the truth. And we spent several weeks, one of the ways we guard the deposit is by guarding that message. And I hope what you heard come out of that and where my heart resonates and has resonated for these years as your pastor is, we want what we do to be based in truth, in Scripture. We make no apology for that. That, that what we do here, we want to be scriptural. We want to come out of this book as best we can determine what it's saying to us. We want to follow that. We want it to be the basis of, of any argument we may have. Um, and I say that. There, there are central issues in this book, central truths that, that we dare not differ on. But there are some peripheral things as you go out, some things that all Christians don't totally agree on. But whether it be a central core issue and more particularly a peripheral issue, 
even if we don't come to the same conclusion at the end as we look at the text, at least we argue from the text. You have no hope if your argument is not based in the text. If you try to have those arguments and you have no basis of the argument to start with, it creates all kinds of problems. I will agree with you. There are things that, 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 that the church does that are not agreed upon by all Christians. There are some of those things, peripheral issues. They are not central issues to salvation. They are not central issues to all of that. There are some that are central, that we don't differ on. We hold to these truths. These are central, and to, to be Christian is to adhere to these truths. But as you go out in those concentric circles, there you get out here. But again, whether it's at the core or out here, the basis is Scripture. We guard this gospel by, by truth, by standing by this truth. And so we make no apology for that. And we talked about that. And we talked about how Timothy talked about that. All over Timothy and Titus. Paul, Paul not Timothy, but Paul talked about it in those books. He talked about protecting it. And he talked about ways it wasn't being protected. One of, the, one of the arguments here was some of the people had gone away from the resurrection, of actually the resurrection happening. Paul brought them back. That's a central issue, by the way. To be a Christian, you, you have to believe in the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Christ. If you, if you adhere to what this book says. Very Christian means we believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ. It is central. And in fact, without it, we have no hope. But there are other issues. But all of those, Paul said, and, and talked about the things that were happening in these churches. Guard the deposit. Guard the truth. So, number one, we spent several weeks guarding the truth. Now, what I want to, to, to go to next is one of the three other areas we're going to talk about. I think we guard the deposit by guarding the truth. We guard the deposit entrusted to us, given to us, by guarding the mission, that we keep the mission of the church what the scripture says the mission ought to be. The important things remain important. But we do what the mission ought to be of the church. So we're going to talk about mission, what it looks like, um, what mandate we have, what mission has been given to us from these, this book. We'll spend a lot of time doing that. Um, the other two areas that we'll talk about later, and I'm not sure exactly what order I will do this, but the third area that we guard it, how we guard this deposit, is we guard it by, uh, by the personal godliness of the lives of the people who make up the church. There, there's a sense in which we guard this message by how we progress in that how we come against that wandering heart, how we fight sin in our lives, how we, we grow in godliness. It, it does a couple of things. One is it, it, it validates whether we get the message correctly. My, my fundamental premise is if you don't get the gospel message right, if you don't get what's entrusted to you right, the gospel, you won't do that right. And, and it will create all kinds of havoc. Um, we'll talk about some of that a little later probably if we get there. But the second thing is is you validate that message by getting it right and by progressing in it. There's a sense in which people look at you and say, you really believe what you believe. They may not agree with it, but they do are convinced that you believe it by the way you live. It validates the message. It doesn't change it. It's still the message. It still comes from God. But there's a sense in which our lives validate it as the church. And so we'll talk about that part. And then finally, we guard the deposit by guarding the leadership. 
um, by those who lead the church, that we're careful, we're careful in that and, and, and who we raise up to lead the church. Uh, I'm becoming more and more aware of how incredibly important leadership is. Because to be honest with you, as you look at, as you look at the scripture, as you look at the scripture asking the question, how do you do church? There aren't a lot of specific answers. There, are, there is no place in the Bible where it says you gather together at 1045 in a building with high walls and a cross in the front. It doesn't say that. So I hope you're like me. This is the way I'm wired. I say, okay, then why do we do it? Well, I hope the answer to that, we'll come to that when we come to leadership. The answer to that is you, you, you raise up leaders who see the mission of the church and they've designed that's a good way to accomplish that mission. You see, there's, there's a sense in which there, there's some decisions that have to be made of how to do it. It doesn't give us all the specific answers. It gives the big picture of what you should do. But fleshing that out has to do with godly leaders fleshing it out together. Um, one of the things we are doing, a couple of things we're doing right now in in our leadership is we are we are working we are working on that whole leadership model the leadership model we we have believing that really a plurality of of elders is a biblical model that we get a plurality of elders leading the church a plurality not not just one person but a plurality of of people raised up to lead and, and to, are, are carefully selected by the criteria that we're going to look at in Timothy and Titus. There's specific criteria of what that should look like. When we come to the leadership part, that's what we're going to look at. And we'll spend some time on that. But now for this morning, the mission. The mission. What, what is the mission of the church? There's, there's two interesting things. This, this has been my thought process as I've prepared this message. And to be honest with you, I may not get clear through it. We may have to finish it next week. But you think about the early church. There were two things that probably never happened. If they did, they'd be incredibly rare. And that was these two things. The early church, first century church. Church that began to form after Christ had ascended to heaven. Particularly in that time. Right, right at the beginning. Number one... There, there probably wasn't any believer who didn't attach himself to a church if he could. I just, this wasn't thought of. If you were a believer, if you've come to see the glory of God in the face of Christ, and you'd embrace Christ, and you began to follow Christ, you began to know as a Christ follower, it was just. It was just the next thing you did. You attached to the body. You you found other people who had decided to follow that same Christ. You you connected to the body. It just happened. The only time it wouldn't happen is if you didn't have somebody else to connect to. You were the only believer in a certain locality. But if you were the only believer, your hope was there would be another. And then you would be the church together. There was just none of this Lone Ranger mentality. It just wasn't there. You, you connected to the body. 
No believer went it alone. And secondly, no unbeliever probably just willy-nilly connected with you in the body. So believers, just second nature was to find somebody else, be the church. An unbeliever shied away from it. It was dangerous. It was incredibly dangerous to be known as a Christ follower for many in that early church. And so those two things just didn't happen. The very persecution, suffering, and ridicule that came with it kept kept the casual seeker away. If he was seeking, he didn't tell many people he was seeking until he was sure. And then he connected to the body. Today, it is, it is not always the case. What makes it the church and doing what we're doing right now difficult today is that you don't have a pure model of the first century church and the church today. Partly and mostly because of persecution. Because we can come here today and nobody was going to do anything to you for the fact that you came today, for the most part. I mean, it's just, it, it's just totally different. Back then, to connect was dangerous. And so you didn't do it till you were sure. And when you were sure, you connected for your life. It's just different today. It's different. And, and in some ways, it's easier because we're not facing persecution, but in other ways, it's harder to know exactly how to do it. We have more decisions to make. When you're persecuted, you have less decisions to make of how you do it. As you're free, you have more decisions to make. So you have to be careful. Again, you see the value of leadership, how incredibly important it is that we can see those things and understand that difference. And even as we read Scripture, understand that difference together. Um, today, there are two polar opposites because, you know, there was no such thing, as I said, as Lone Rangers then, and there was no such thing as churches defined by those who were seeking. But today it's different. Today, there are two polar opposites that have developed within the church world, at least the evangelical church world. And I think broader than that, it's gone beyond that. But those two polar opposites are, first of all, there's, a, there's an opposite way to do it, that, that churches have set out to do it, where the best way to say it is that they are, are uh, seeker-sensitive. I mean, that term will mean something to some of you, some it won't mean anything to you. But the whole idea that, that the church is designed for the seeker. When you decide to start a church or to plant a church, there are places that make a decision, we're going to be a seeker-centered church. We're going to be for the seeker, for those who are wanting to understand things and, and try to reach those who are unchurched and, and unchurched even to the degree that they just, they're, they're not believers, they're not Christians. So, so their whole mentality is that we are going to have a seeker mentality. Now the other extreme of that is the whole idea that the church, God forbid, that an unbeliever might slip in. Because what happens if he would take communion and he shouldn't? Or, or other questions like that. So, so there's two polar opposites today that, that spring up. And there's all kinds of stuff in between that. So the question you have to ask is, how do you navigate that? I mean, let me give you a picture of what I mean by that again. It'll help you to get it clearer. A seeker-sensitive 
church, they decide to plant a church, they decide to make it seeker-sensitive, they might choose to meet in a bar. They do. Why? Because, partly because they, they understand that not everyone, but some that go there are seekers. They go where they're at, where they're most comfortable. They're not comfortable coming into a building like this, but they would be comfortable. You see, the, the whole mentality is you do it for the comfort of them so they'll keep coming back so as they seek, you can get the truth to them. So that would, that would be somewhat of an extreme, although that's not so extreme anymore. Even in that moment, there are more extreme things. Another thing that a seeker church will do is, uh, I, I heard this not long ago, was actually two or three years ago, whenever Christmas landed on Sunday, um, there were many churches who, who had this motif who, who didn't have church on Christmas. And they didn't have church on New Year's because it landed on the very day. So they just didn't have it. Because that's not a very productive day. People are busy with other things. Seekers are busy with other stuff. And so we're not going to have very big attendance. It's just going to be a bunch of believers here. So why do it? Why take the effort to do that for the believers? So we just won't have it. So they just canceled it on Christmas and New Year's. That happened all over. In fact, you got on the Internet. Now, now you can get on the Internet and find out what's happening. It was all over the net of what to do. What do we do? Christmas is on Sunday. Or the other extreme of, you know, some of you have experienced this in, at times, but I've been in settings where, where we've gathered together with other churches to do something, and, and they're going to pray before the event, and literally there are some who will back out of the circle, physically back out of the circle of prayer before the event. Why do they do that? Why won't they pray with other churches? Because there's the other polar opposite of that extreme of what if there's an unbeliever there? We haven't checked them all out. We haven't got their ID. So, God forbid that we would miss it and pray with an unbeliever. Those are polar opposites. Now, the truth of the matter is, churches kind of are all over that gamut today. And, and you have to, as a pastor, you have, as leaders, you have to somehow deal with that. Part of the reason for that is, again, because the first century church, you can't just look at that and say, because persecution, there was differences. You don't have as many options. There are more options. So how many of those options are good options? How many of those options are not such good options? You have the freedom, but is it the best thing? One of the things I've learned in 33 years of ministry is is part of the, the being in a place this long is you can, you can make changes and people will trust you to make changes. But I, I realized not too long ago, it's probably been longer than I think, that there's, there's some changes. I could make them, but I'm not sure they're the best thing to do long term. You know, that's, a, that's, kind of a, that's kind of a heavy responsibility. You can make these choices, but are they the right choices? Change for change sake can get you in lots of trouble. That's the whole plurality of elders thing we're going to talk about. People help check us in some of those things. But I say all that to say this. My contention is this. Of those two polar opposites, my contention is this, that neither one of them, neither one of them, of those extremes, guards the deposit in our day and age today. 
today, when we hear guard the deposit entrusted to you, neither one of those extremes does it effectively. So, so it's going to be in the middle someplace. Not necessarily in the smack in the middle, but there's some place in between those two that, that I think I land and I feel like I do land. I, I've been here 33 years um, this last summer, I guess. I'm on, going beyond 33 now. So over those years, my philosophy of ministry has, has developed, but early on, these kinds of things began to develop for me. And, and that's this. What, what should Sunday morning mean? Now, when you talk about the church, the church is lots of things. So what, I, what I'm talking about here now is Sunday morning, what, what this service itself looks like. So as best I, that's not the church totally. You understand that. But as the church gathers on Sunday morning, that's the best place to kind of show the difference, show where I come from. So I'm talking about this gathering on Sunday morning. What should this gathering on Sunday morning look like? What part of the pendulum does it fall on? Seeker sensitive? Or seeker, I say that wrong, seeker driven? Or believer driven? The totality of those two extremes. I, I fall off on the right side of that gamut. I don't, I don't, I don't put the two intention together and play off the two. I would fall more on the right side. I, I would fall fundamentally, philosophically, that when I plan this worship service along with others now, I don't do it all by myself anymore, but early on when I did it myself, early on I decided I'm going to gear it primarily for believers. Fundamentally, I believe that the gathering on Sunday morning is for believers. But I do not go to the extreme of backing out of circles. That's, that's not where I go. And I, I would say the difference is this. I, I am not seeker-driven in how we do it, but I'm seeker-sensitive in how we do it. By sensitive, just let me give you what I mean by that. I've said this before. I said, you, you know, the ushers don't have bad breath. You know, we don't repel people at the door. We open doors for them. We don't make it hard for them to get in the building. We don't check their IDs. That's extreme. But other things we do is we read Scripture because we're, we're for the church and Scripture strengthens us. But we gave you the page number today. I remember when I was seeking, I hardly knew an Old Testament from a New Testament, more or less trying to find anything in it. So why do we give a page number? To be seeker-sensitive. That we don't want to embarrass people. We don't want somebody that doesn't know their Bible to start to turn. There's nothing more embarrassing to start to turn to it and can't, you know, and you know the guy next to you knows you can't find it. I mean, I remember that. So we want to be seeker sensitive. We, we, uh, we have nurseries and restrooms that are pleasant. We, we, uh, we define terms. I hope I do. I don't always do that. I don't, I don't succeed totally in that. But, but I don't just try to purposely confuse people by using terminology that only believers might understand or people who've been around the church or their Bibles a little bit. I try to define that. I try to break it down. I try. In fact, when, when I'm aware that somebody who is seeking, and, I, and I'm not sure, I don't always know that. Obviously, Sometimes I do. Somebody brought a friend who's really wrestling with Christianity. When I know they're here, I'm, I'm better. 
because I, 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 I'm more careful to not use platitudes or, or terms that aren't understandable. It makes me be better in that sense. So th- that's the kind of thing what I mean by seeker-sensitive. We're not seeker-driven. I'm not seeker-driven, but I'm seeker-sensitive. And, and how that fleshes itself out, we'll come to this a little bit later, but how that fleshes itself out, do, do I encourage you to invite unbelievers to come or, or invite somebody who's seeking or, or somebody who maybe is unchurched? I do. I, I think it's okay. But at the same time, I don't do everything we do in the service to make sure they come back the next week. I... I, I I think there are things that we do if we are driven by the church being for believers, and we are going to get there, although I don't know if we're going to get there today, that, that are part of it. I, what I want you to see from this text now is that, that when I say that I am, I am um, primarily designing this for believers, there are some things that are in it because of that. Some things that, that I am driven by. I'm not driven, I'm not driven by... The seeker, I'm driven by some things that I think strengthen believers and believe at the same time influence seekers or maybe even unbelievers or people who've been disenfranchised by the church or disillusioned by the church. So I say all of that to say now look at the text. Look at the text. I want you to look at a verse in the text that I have wrestled with all week. In fact, I've I vacillated with one of the one of the da- most dangerous things you can do when you're preparing for Sunday morning is to talk about it before you're totally there. I did that this week. I, this text, I remember, had Pastor Jason in looking at this text early in the week. I talked about it in my small group, and and I I was in the formulated part of doing what I'm doing here, trying to determine from this text what it's saying. These words, these are the words that I was wrestling with. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. That's the text that I, I center what I'm going to say to you about where I land. And uh, I started talking about it and, and realized that that's dangerous because you start to say, say I, for, for some, I mean, you may hear me back up a little bit of something I said to you this week. As I looked at this text more, as I wrestled with this text more, it it began to to, to change for me. Not that the text changed; I, my interpretation of it got more correct. I think part of it I had done some of that before I started to read others, and I'm always careful to do that. I I try to come to my own conclusions before I go to the commentary, so I'm not influenced by those. But as I went to read others, you know, one of the things I've said to you, don't be saying something that you haven't heard anybody else say. There's nothing new under the sun. I'm pretty careful when I think I found something that I'm not reading someplace else. And uh, sure enough, I, I, it helped me. That helped me today. But now, let me, let me whet your appetite because I can't get through it all. I, can't, cannot, I cannot get through this text. We'll, we'll, we'll do it next week, I promise you. We will do it next week, and now I have to figure out how to land this plane. Let me try to figure out how to do that so that I get you back next week. Um, let, let me just do this. I'll just leave you like I left. That's a good way to do it, isn't it? I'll just leave you where I was at all week. Let you dangle a little bit. <laughs> Here it is. Let me, let me define a couple of things, and I'll let you dangle. 
Let me define some terms. I endure everything for the sake. Paul, I mean, you can hear his passion, can't you? I endure everything. Lots of suffering, lots of trouble, lots of stuff. Pete was, Pete, Paul, Paul suffered in excruciating hardship because of the gospel. And all of it, he says, I endure it all for the sake of the elect. Now, define the elect. I need to do that. The elect are are all those God is going to save. Elect, those that are, that are going to one day be saved, are going, to, are going to be with Him forever. So He endures everything for the sake of the elect. Um, another way to talk about um, the elect, let me, let, me, uh, uh, let me see. These are some ways to describe it. The number of people to, to be saved, I said that, but the number given to the Son by the Father. In John chapter 6, it talks about that the Father gives the Son a certain number of people. In other words, the Son to save. And, and so um, John 6 says that. And so that's, that's, that would be a definition of elect, the number that the Father gives to the Son. Um, the number whose eyes have been opened to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. That would be another way to describe all those who God is going to open their spiritual eyes to see the glory of God in the face of His Son, Jesus Christ. That would be another way to describe the elect. There's, there's multitudes of ways. The, the number um, who fall on Jesus Christ is their only hope. In my Sunday school class, um, a couple of weeks ago, that was the description. The, the speaker said, the elect are those who fall on Christ. Christians are those who have fallen on Christ as their only hope. As, as Him providing that alien righteousness, that foreign righteousness that He accomplished, His perfection. We talked about it in prayer time. All The elect are all those who have rested in that as their hope. That alien righteousness, that perfection that He accomplished and would give to us and will give to all His elect. So, so elect means that, okay? Now, here's where I let you dangle. Is, is that elect just the people who have already become Christians? Who have already fallen on Christ? Who have already had their eyes open to see the glory of God in the face of Christ? Or does it include also those who are yet to do that? Because when that number is up, Christ will return and He hasn't returned. And so the full number has not yet come in, the Scripture says. So the question is, is, is Paul here talking about those to this, this date, the church? Or some that are going to be a part of the church that aren't yet a part of the church? Well, we'll talk about it next week, okay? Let's stand together. How you answer that is important. It's no small matter of how we do church and where we land in that whole pendulum that we talked about. But let's just sing about the deposit this morning as we close. This is what we're guarding, what we're going to sing about, what we have been singing about. 
This is the deposit. We're to guard it. We're to guard it by guarding the truth. We're to guard it by being careful to get the mission right. Let's sing. Holy God in love became perfect man to get guarding this deposit correct. Help us to pursue it humbly, Lord, and and more than anything else, pursue it according to your word. For the sake, Father, of the elect, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Bless you. Dismissed.